We have to restore ecosystem functions, but our, our environments, particularly our coastal environments, are going to be very different 20, 30, 50 years from now. And uh, because the coasts are at the leading edge of this, this change, and we need to be thinking, what do we want them to look like in 50 years? Well, welcome everybody to the See As Many Voices and our, uh, our, our interview with uh, Dr. Jerry Schubel, the CEO and president of the Aquarium of the Pacific. Uh, thanks, Jerry, for all your time. Uh, we've talked a lot about climate change in past segments with you, uh, and uh, we, you and I both agree that's, that's where the world needs to focus our attention. Uh, it's a triage, isn't it, in a way? There's a lot of things happening in, in our world. Our massive and rapid industrialization has resulted in many unintended consequences of which global warming is one, but there are others yeah. that uh, have attention. And you have been a leader for many years in bringing these powerful, uh, the, power, the power of an aquarium, which is one of the most popular places in the world for people to go and learn things. They trust aquariums. There's, there's, there's science showing that. Um, and it's the animals, really, at the end of the day, isn't it? It's about the animals that draw people in. Yes. And these animals are, uh, are kept here. And one thing people don't realize in an aquarium is that the amount of work that goes into this. It's like, I, 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 somebody once said it would be like, you know, like art aquariums. I mean, art, art museums have paintings on the wall and sculptures here and there. And it would be like, imagine going into an art museum and feeding and, and cleaning and moving around every painting and every yeah. sculpture every day, you know, five or six times. Can you give me, can you give our listeners, maybe we'll do a cutaway here, of a glimpse of what happens at the Aquarium of the Pacific behind the scenes? I mean, just like, what's a, what's a day in the life? Well, you know, these are uh, relatively modest sized institutions, but they're very complex because yeah. we have to feed all the animals. So we've got a food service for animals and for people. We've got a hospital for animals in which we provide both preventative and restorative medicine to the 11 or 12,000 animals that we have. Uh, you you have, have 11 or 12,000 different species here? Not, not different species. No. Okay, I, and, animals, and, okay. And, um, and, and so these are complex organizations, but basically you're right. It's the animals that bring people in. They're the bait to get, get them in here. There's a wonderful Russian proverb that says, it's not the horse that pulls the cart, it's the oats. And, <laughs> and the oats in an aquarium are the, the live animals. But then you've got the cart. And if, if all you do is bring people in and entertain them and take their money so they can buy things in the gift shop and in and, and the restaurant, then we surely have failed. We have the opportunity to really engage them in some of these big issues in ways that entertain, engage, and empower them. And the model we have always used is to bring the best scientists to the table. And if with every exhibit, every film we create, every, every program that we create, and ask them, what are the big issues the public should know about? And then we take all that, digest it, put it into a form that our people think will work with the public and send it back and say, do we have this right? You know, Jerry, I, I can speak with a little bit of authority on this, and I think you are the leader in that model of convening scientists. You're, you're, you're such a wonderful facilitator and convener. You're a deep thinker, 
and you've led the aquarium industry in that model, which is to have science drive the base, and you, you bring the scientists, I've been there with you, you'll fill a room with scientists, and, and, and you, they don't care, and you don't care <clears throat> about what the exhibit uh, requirements are going to be. What you want to know are what the issues are, what the animals are going to require, and how that'll, how that'll all fit together, whether it's an ecosystem services story or something else. And then you marry that knowledge with creatives. Right. And tell me about your creatives. So you, you come out of a workshop of scientists and they've told you that coral bleaching, we talked about that in another, in another uh, segment of your interview, is an issue. And then you go to the creatives. Tell, give the listeners a little idea of how the creatives take the raw science and then what happens. <laughs> well, it, it used to be, as you remember, yeah. when we first did this yeah. at another aquarium. Another aquarium. <laughs> <laughs> Which will, which will remain un, unnamed to this some particular event. Some of the people were quite offended. A that, fine aquarium. The other aquarium's a fine aquarium. It was a fine aquarium, but they were quite offended. that we, they, we have enough knowledge right inside these walls. We don't need that. Yeah. But it got, by the end, they understood that they knew things far better than the scientists did in terms of packaging this kind of information. It was, it was the combination of the two. So in, in our uh, aquarium, this aquarium, we have some very creative people, but we also bring other people in, creative people from the outside. And uh, whether they're exhibit designers uh, or production companies like Cortina Productions and Bowman, Bowman Design, and uh, to help us refine the exhibits, the look and feel, because it's all, it's all very important well, yeah, how it gets presented. I, I'll tell you, my, I'll give you my, my personal experience in your new wing here. You guys opened up a, what, 70,000 square foot? No, 29, 29, almost 30,000. square new square foot wing here at the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach. And what blew me away was your plankton wall. Yeah. Uh, you, you projected a view, a microscopic view of plankton on this wall such that you could see everything. Yeah. And I know that I'm a specialist, so you have to keep that in mind, but I've never seen anybody, I've never seen any way to engage people in plankton like that wall that you have anywhere else. And that was a studio uh, out of Europe, uh, Convivial Studios, and yeah. now they work closely with our people, but uh, it, that was a very creative one. It was and, a very creative uh, and, idea. And also in the other side of that room, which is an art gallery, a permanent art gallery, we wanted something for blind people that, that dealt with coral reefs. So that gallery focuses on plankton at the base of the food chain, and then also coral reefs because they're kind of the canary in the mine. And there's an entire wall so that if you were blind, it has, replicates the, the textures and the structures Great. of coral reefs and you can run your hand over it and get a good feel for what it's like. So I think the, 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 the excitement in all of this is when you bring smart, creative people with different perspectives together and develop something that no one person or two persons could do alone. And it, it's, I, I like there's a phrase, creative abrasion. Because people, <laughs> you rub them against each other, they get irritated, but out of the, those irritations, something magical can happen. Yeah. God, you, you got the best quotes. Um, you know, the, one, the quote you, you taught me many years ago was, um, you probably remember it better than me, but it had to do with the decisions we make now will have implications for thousands of years more than any other decision humanity has made in the past. Do you remember that one? I don't remember. Okay. That. Well, it, it, you, synthesizing these things are, are, <clears throat> is an important part of uh, 
of what you do, what the Aquarium of the Pacific does, whether it's quotes as, you're, as you've just been doing or whether it's these exhibits. You really operate at a nexus, I think, between the operating world out here on the one hand where we're, 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 we're also at, it's important I think to mention that we are at the or one of the most busiest ports in the world, aren't we? Long Beach and Los Angeles uh, are the, uh, the largest ports in the United States. They okay. account for almost 50% of all the finished goods that come into the U.S. Right. from all ports. All right, so it's a very busy port out here. It's a beautiful place to live. There's a lot of people that live here and there's a lot of ocean and the Aquarium of the Pacific is interpreting for that busy uh, civilization out there the natural environment right. upon which everything depends. Now you're not saying what everybody's doing is bad by any means. In fact, we all need right. it, we want it. We're part of, we've become, humans have become part of the earth ocean atmospheric system. And, and a dominant part. And a dominant part. And we need to manage our dominance yes. such that the, the things that we're dominating, that they actually give us things in um, services, benefits to, to humanity. You know, I once heard um, it said that you can measure the values of a civilization by its skyline, and that the largest structures on the skyline are what that civilization values the most in general terms. And, and if you look back in time, you know, what did we start out with? Castles. <clears throat> so that, that meant you valued hereditary power right. and, and, and uh, military activity. And then churches popped yeah, into the absolutely. picture, and suddenly churches were the biggest thing on the skyline. And that showed our transformation to religion. Right. And then you, you could say that the next phase, I think you could say were factories and financial centers is kind of what began to dominate the skylines, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. And so that money, which is okay, we all like money, it's not a bad thing, but it's, it's kind of where the focus of our right. civilization went. I think that I would probably share a vision with you that someday the aquarium should be the biggest building in the, on the skyline, or, or, or a facility that addresses those issues should be a, a, a dominant structure. And in fact, aquariums have become important parts of uh, coastal development, haven't they? Yeah, uh, yes. Redevelopment, let's say. Boston was, was, was the first, and Baltimore, Monterey, um, and, and this aquarium, yeah. And Can you tell Tennessee. that story? Because I think that's a really important <laughs> story. Um, well, it started in, in Baltimore. Yeah. Um, with the, the Baltimore was kind of down on uh, Boston. Sorry, Boston was down on its its heels, and yeah. somebody uh, decided maybe we should have an aquarium. And uh, Cambridge Seven, the architects, got together with the uh, development company that did Faneuil Hall Marketplace, and it completely transformed the waterfront of Boston. And the model worked so well. And, and the so waterfront was a place before that that no one wanted to be. Nobody wanted no to No one be. wanted it. It right. was full of rats and right. homeless, not, not even a lot of homeless people back then, but it was not an attractive part no, of the city. It was so, and, so, then, yeah. and then Baltimore, and I lived in Baltimore at the time, and Baltimore had been a wonderful, thriving city. Then the riots came along, the stores moved to the suburbs, the waterfront was abandoned, and they took the same model of an aquarium and, and the development, the same companies, same architect, and they developed the National Aquarium in Baltimore. It transformed that waterfront. They called those the anchor anchor those development. Were the, those the were anchor, the, the first one in, and then it drew people to, to it. So then you yeah. needed parking, you needed restaurants, yes. and then it became like the place to be. That's right. And after time, uh, yeah. those are both. I think so, that's a really important part of this aquarium story. Is is that because it 
You're right. It went around the world. Did it happen here too? I don't know the Long Beach story. Yeah, no, it ha definitely happened here. Yeah. Even when when we I arrived here uh, 17 years ago, there wasn't a single building between us and the convention center. And now there are all these restaurants and, and uh, clothing oh, so stores the and same, so on. The so same magic it, happened. The same kind of, yeah, and it happened in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It happened uh, uh, Monterey. Did, so they, they can be catalysts for development. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and I think with maybe not the tallest building. Not the tallest, yeah. every society needs what are called third places in society. We have the places where we work and the places where we live. But we need places where we gather to explore, to discuss ideas and ideals and goals. Churches are, are uh, gathering third places in society. The 92nd Street Y in New York City is, um, and I think we've become that here in, in Long Beach because we have a lecture once a week, we have films, festivals, uh, 10 or 12 festivals every year on weekends. That's an important function of bringing people together because we, we are more and more isolated. We communicate by texting and... Uh, mm, mm. You know, another, another thing that a program, a function, a service that the Aquarium of the Pacific here in Long Beach has provided that I'd like to call out on because I'm particularly close to the Pacific Island work. My work and uh, world is very focused in that area is you've become a, a, a central point for Pacific Island communities that right. live in California, isn't that right? Yes, we have a Pacific Islander festival every year and we have uh, African American, Native American, several Hispanic festivals. We have the uh, Pacific Islander festival and uh, one festival of human abilities and all, these are on weekends and we essentially turn the aquarium over to each of these groups and and celebrate in dance and song and storytelling how their cultures relate to the ocean and the earth that's fabulous i mean that's really good i i, I don't I don't think any other aquarium does that, do well, they? It's some, Monterey now ha has festivals do and they, some others do. But they're festival and around cultural I connections so. like that? I've never, okay. but, uh, and, and it, it really made a big difference in our aquarium. 15 years ago, our visitors were mostly upper middle class, well-educated Caucasians. Mm -hmm. Didn't reflect the society of Southern California at all. Now with all these festivals, we have the most diverse ethnic audience of any congratulations! Wow, that's wonderful, Jerry. And it, it makes us more yeah. relevant. And uh, oh yeah, yeah, you're 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 connecting. You're doing what what should happen. And I, I know from the Pacific Island Festival firsthand because I live not too far from here. Uh, one year it was happening, and some of my Pacific Island friends were getting all excited about this to go dance yeah. to do some uh, of their cultural historical historical yeah. dancing. It really was a everybody wanted to be there. Yeah. You know, so thank you. And it isn't <laughs> just on those weekends, it isn't just the Pacific Islanders who come. Other people from all yeah. other backgrounds. That's and right. One of the most dramatic is every year in the African American festival that we do in Black History Month, that we, there are always young children drumming, young African American children. And then halfway through or so, they invite other kids to join them. And by the end, you've got yellow and white and black all drumming together. And you realize <laughs> that if we didn't get in the way, that we all can live in harmony on, on this 
earth. And uh, it's very emotional to watch that happen. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm going to give you a quote now, because I think <laughs> it was Ralph Waldo Emerson said, nothing great ever happened without enthusiasm. Well, I, yes, I think that's, that's true. Isn't that a good one? Yeah. And, and you're creating, I think you're creating, you called it the third environment, but you're also creating enthusiasm and positive energy, but, but including the reality of the world right. for those that wish to seek it. It's here. So I'll give you another one that go, go along. Yeah, Winston, go with it. Winston Churchill says, success is going from failure to failure without losing optimism. So. <laughs> I like that. Uh, he, isn't he so wonderfully quotable? Yes. <laughs> I was. I was involved in a. I'm, I'm involved in a, a couple of other projects that I. Uh, we all got excited about where we were and the thing, and I said, "Yeah, we are. We're." We're not at the beginning, we're not at the end, we're probably at the end of the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> There's one that I... Which is a trick, oh, yeah. I'm, uh, as you know, I studied Chesapeake Bay for yeah. a long time. And there's this one. Authority, your he, authority on it. He yeah. has this wonderful quote, that when we pit the present, the present yeah. against the past, we run the risk of losing the future. That's what's happening, I think, in a lot of our environmental yeah. movement. We're so preoccupied with restoration to restore something to what it was yeah. 10, 20, 50, 100 years ago, we're losing sight of the future, and we can't restore to something that's gone. You know, I, I'm in complete alignment with you on that, Jerry. I've, I've even come up with my own term for it. I, I think that we suffer from what I call wilderness guilt, that we, as a, as a yeah. civilization, have destroyed a lot of yeah. wilderness, yeah. The, the way the earth was before we arrived. And we, we have this guilt that we have to restore it, for some reason. And I, I think we, we certainly want wilderness. Yes. I'm not saying we don't want wilderness. I love wilderness. I've had more than my fair share of it from Antarctica to the equator. But we don't need to restore things to the way they were. We need to create and restore them to the way they will take us into the future right. in, a, in a sustainable, regenerative way. Right. And uh, being able to let go of uh, that obligation a lot of people feel about, about, about restoration of wilderness, I think, is an important step. And, that, and that, that Churchill quote, was that Churchill? Travis Churchill. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use and, that and, one. And I, I, we, we have to restore ecosystem functions. But our, our environments, particularly our coastal environments, are going to be very different 20, 30, 50 years yes. from now. Yes, yes. And uh, the, because the coasts are at the leading edge of this, this change, and we need to be thinking, what do we want them to look like in 50 years? You know, I was uh, involved, and you were too, uh, at, some, at some extent, with the creation of the Ocean Health Index uh, a few years ago. And that was uh, originally a construct that uh, Bill Wrigley, who's the he, he ran the Wrigley Gum Company at the time. Right. Uh, became a, a good friend of mine, and we collaborated on on trying to find solutions. And Bill asked for a metric right. on how to measure ocean health because he wanted to invest philanthropically to improve ocean health. And I said, "Oh, fine. Uh, there must be one out there right. somewhere." And I looked around, <laughs> and there wasn't. That no. we had a we just had an array of measurements for the ocean, right. from temperature to pH to numbers of fish. So we sat down and. Uh, spent a lot of time creating an index that, that combined a lot of data sets to measure ocean health. And it, there, was a, there was a moment where we had to define a healthy ocean. Right. And 98% of the scientists, we involved a lot in it, and you were one of them, thought that a healthy ocean was an ocean that would 
deliver benefits to people on a sustainable way now and into the future, right. and that we were part of the ocean ecosystem now. We, were, we weren't looking for a pristine ocean. Right. But we had a few scientists who just could not let go of the ocean of a thousand years ago, and that was their goal, was to return the ocean today to what it was like a thousand years ago, which is it's not only impossible, it's also impractical, <laughs> and it doesn't do anything for people or make no. any sense. No. Um, so we have become, this is, this is the thing that people have to get, we have become part of the ocean ecosystem. So as you look at a coastline, and if you see a fishing village, and maybe you see an aquaculture pen, and maybe you see a hotel even, if those activities are functioning in a way that does not degrade the ocean, in fact, they should all be improving the ocean somehow, that's regenerative right. development, it's okay. That's the new natural that's right the, there. Right. I totally, totally agree, I think, and um, we are part of nature, and um, as you say, we've, we've come to dominate it, and as, as Stuart Brand has said, we are gods, we might as well get good at it. I think, <laughs> I think that is, uh, we are gods, we might as well get good at it. That's a good one. That's a great one to, uh, <clears throat> I think, bring this part of our discussion to a conclusion, Jerry. Uh, you've, really, you've really inspired me, as you always do. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. I enjoyed being with you. Yeah, me too.